This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Garcia, the center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. The oral history program began at Cal State Fullerton in 1968. It became the Center for Oral and Public History in the early 2000s. Now it enters a new phase with the expansion of its physical space and a move from the third to the sixth floor of the Pollock Library. This state-of-the-art educational space contains a new recording room where I sat down with director Natalie Fusekis, a dream of 15 years or so finally having come true. It's good to have you back, Natalie. Thanks for having me. I feel like this might be my fourth or fifth time. I think you're the record setter, which is appropriate. People could get sick of hearing my voice, too. After all, one could say that the new DeGroff Center is the house that Natalie Fusekis built. Well, then that's a little over the top, but... It's been one of your major... It's been your major project, though, for, what, more than 10 years, right? Yeah, I believe it was either in 2009, um, this project was hatched with uh, Joan Rubio, who was then Director of Development in the College for Humanities and Social Sciences, as a, well, it was first hatched by you and me and uh, Cora Granada and Ray Rast when we talked about um, our 10-year strategic plan and what we would like for the center. Um, and I believe that was back in 2008. Um, the idea being that we wanted a, a space where, well, two things. One, our precious archival collections could be preserved in the way that they, um, using best archival practices, uh, stable climate control with low humidity, on its own HVAC system. But then as faculty who teach um, our courses and who work on the projects here at the center, we really wanted a space where our students could work on our projects with us, gather together on their own, work on their own projects, come up with ideas for new projects. And then finally, a place where we could welcome members of the community uh, and community being everything from local to national to international uh, who want to look at our collections and our archives in the reading room to gather in our community room for um, lectures, workshops, uh, small exhibitions. Uh, and um, and so here we are. When I got here in 07 and then became uh, one of the associate directors in 08, Having those conversations, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there were about 3,000 oral histories in the collection at that time. I would say it was somewhere in the 3,000s, yeah. So from the 60s till then, since then we've doubled it, right? There are now more than 6,000. Right, I think we're almost to 6,300 oral histories, um, and we've been doing a lot of oral history work. So if the need was great back in 2007-08, for a larger space, more up-to-date, state-of-the-art space. We've only made the problem worse, right, <laughs> by our success. 
Yes and no. I mean, yes, we our success means that we are gathering oral histories and photos and documents, but um, thanks to the digital era, um, most of our oral histories, um, in fact, all of our oral histories since 2011 have been recorded on digital recorders. So we don't have the problem of growing physical space of cassettes and reel-to-reel tapes that we used to have. But we have taken paper collections. We also still gather um, photographs and ephemera material from our narrators. Um, and so the, that need is still there. And some of that material finds its way into exhibition projects and other, other areas, right? Yes. I remember back when we were having those conversations, our first, we, we said, what's, what's our pie-in-the-sky ideal and it was, let's have a building of our own. And of course, that was that was sort of unattainable. But then the idea of the library really came into focus. When, when did the idea of moving from the third floor to the sixth floor become a, a goal of the project and something that you were really aiming for? I think when I, we started talking with... Um, folks on campus and with um, the development folks in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences and with the dean at the time, Tom Klammer, the, um, and this was, I think, in 2008 when I first hatched this, um, we started looking for places on campus that um, had space and where space could be found. And since we have been given space in the library back to um, the Ernie Toy era. Uh, the 1960s. Yeah, Ernie was the first to give the oral history program a home, physical home, and the physical home was here in the library. And um, our physical home had been here in the library ever since then. But as uh, you know, and anyone who came to visit us before now, our, we had long outgrown uh, the space, even it, though it had been remodeled and you know, it was different than what it had originally been. It was not a, a space that was appropriate for the kind of program that we were all building together. It wasn't appropriate for the kind before, but it was even less appropriate now that we were taking on these larger oral history projects, now that we had a full-time uh, archivist, you know, now that we were, you know, collecting hundreds of interviews every year. And since that idea came into focus, there have been all kinds of challenges, right? There was an earthquake, right? <laughs> that yeah. delayed things. And then there's the, just the challenge of marshalling support for a very expensive project. Um, what was most challenging about getting this done? Uh, there were there were multitude of challenges, but um, I had lots of support from the development directors and the deans in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences and even everyone on campus in terms of the idea of this. Um, when we started looking for space, uh, Richard Pollard, who was the university librarian at the time, uh, believed that we, the Center for Oral and Public History, should remain in the library. So he, you know, okayed the idea that we look for the space. The bigger issues came with fundraising, which uh, fundraising in the humanities for a project of this size um, 
was a new endeavor here, was a new endeavor for me, and is really something that's pretty challenging on the whole. So a couple of things happened that that really helped. Uh, first, we received the NEH Challenge Grant in 2011, which which really kickstarted our fundraising. Um, before then, we had received one uh, sort of lead donation by uh, Gordon Morris Bakken, our now our late colleague, who had always been a big supporter of us, had always believed that the center could be something that we imagined it to be, and you know, wrote a $10,000 check uh, as our first donation towards this large renovation and expansion project. Um, the other issues along the way, we we raised a significant amount of money towards that grant, but, you know, um, bringing big Orange County donors to Cal State Fullerton is a relatively new thing, i.e. basically since the time I've been here, they really is when the real fundraising had begun. So we were far behind uh, the Chapmans and the UC Irvines the of the world. The assumption that, that Cal State, they were state funded, so why do they need a phone call? Right, and, and given that we were the sort of teaching arm of the university system, you know, faculty weren't doing research. These were all the kind of erroneous assumptions. So um, fundraising, and then as time went on, you had uh, administrative changes, both everything from the president of the university to the provost to the university librarians, um, the college deans, the college deans, the cost of the process. You know, to renovate the original um, estimate was two point five million, but by the time we actually came around to uh, renovate, you know, beginning the renovation, it was up to four point. million. Um, And, you know, we've raised about 3.1 of that 4.7 now. And so, unfortunately, my, even though we're sitting in this nice space in our new, beautiful, soundproofed interviewing room, I'm still trying to raise money. But you've been able to make the case that this is a good investment. Right? Have you been able to make that case? Have you been able to show that it's a good investment? I think that um, well, two things. One, I th- the the people that we've talked to understand the importance of preserving history, whether it's that they see that because they're they want to preserve their own family's history, and they understand that if you don't uh, record oral histories you know, histories of their family members and others will will go away. We also, um, you know, the, we're named the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oil and Public History because our um, colleague and friend and founding faculty member, Lawrence DeGraff, um, you know, was a smart investor uh, while being a history professor. I wish somebody had taught me the same skills they taught him. Um, and, you know, I think... We all can. We all agree that I can't think of anyone that I'd rather have the center named after than than Larry DeGraff for all that he did to uh, build the campus, build the history department, um, be you know one of the first uh, faculty members who was doing oral history work, and then also somebody who saw a vision for not just an oral history program but a public history program. 
here um, at Cal State Fullerton. Yeah, and I, he did have that vision, and I remember that very clearly when I came here. He and our Hanson, they really wanted a, a substantial public history presence, and they wanted the two to dance together, Orland Public History, as the name of the center indicated, and I think that's been a major goal of ours. Um, I would also add, I, I think another way that the case has been made is just the great work our students have done over the years. I, when we talk about doubling the number of oral histories, that's remarkable. Well, we didn't do all those oral histories, right? The majority of those were done by students who were learning this, some often for the first time, who were getting excited by this. And then there are exhibition programs where students were putting on exhibits and doing digital mapping projects. All of that seems to be something we can point to that this, this model actually works and that students get excited and students are getting something for their, their investment in this. And I would, I, you know, I think the vision that we've all created of if I launch an oral history project, I make sure that it doesn't just go sit in the archive, but that I work with you or Dr. Brown Cornell or, or others in, in our faculty to make sure that it then has a public history component, at least one, hopefully multiple public history components, and vice versa, right? When you had ideas for exhibitions, we made sure that we were able to um, draw off of those collections. And what's been wonderful about those exhibits is that it has brought the public in front of the work that our students have done, um, whether it's they were the ones that recorded the oral histories, whether they were the ones that helped... Um, design and put up the exhibition and choose and write the labels, all of that, um, you know, has helped people see the kind of work that we do and the kinds of partnerships that we've been able to have with um, what was the Orange County Great Park, um, you know, and then um, with different organizations throughout Orange County on a lot of these projects and, and, and organizations beyond Orange County. Um, all of that has helped people understand that the work that we do isn't just a bunch of scholars sitting around doing this work that we, you know, we give students the most hands-on um, experience and we train them to be professionals in a very practical as well as intellectual scholarly fashion. Multiple times over the years, students have said to me, wow, I, I thought history was one thing and then I took oral history class. And it totally changed my view. Or I took public history class and it blew my mind. I, did, I didn't even think about being able to do history that way. And that, that's really gratifying because they're doing that as part of projects they work on here right. at the center. We've even parlayed that into being able to hire some of them from time to time, right? And one of the things that this expansion has helped us do is, is give our staff some more some more room, some more elbow room to work, right? Yes, more uh, room for our staff and then room for us to really have a robust internship and, um, you know, as I work on funding, graduate and undergraduate, you know, paid assistantship programs so that we can give our students experience in archives, in exhibitions, in um, collecting oral histories beyond what they do just in a classroom, but on a much higher and more uh, intense level and really cater what they do here to their interests. Yeah, absolutely. 
And we see that in the kinds of projects that students are taking on, and it's pretty exciting. We're here in a very quiet room. Tell our listeners where we are and why it's so quiet. Uh, we are in the uh, recording room that was one of the things that we made sure we designed into the space. Both the, And when we thought of this, it was before we had a podcast, and it was really a room so that uh, most of the time our students and when we go out and do the interviews, we most of the time go to somebody's office or home. But I would say there's a, a, a significant portion of interviews that um, – we're looking for a place to do them on campus that is quiet and that the students can or I can or, you know, can conduct them. And so we built this room that is soundproofed. I mean, we could yell and they will probably hear us, but we can't I can't really hear anything that's going on outside of what we're doing in this room right now. Um, so and already this semester, I've had um, three different students use this room to record oral histories uh, for my um, oral history course. We like the sound of that. The center is being used. Let's let's sort of mentally walk through this remarkable space. How many square feet are we talking about? Uh, it's about ten thousand. I want to say five hundred. Uh, might be eleven thousand. Our old space was about five thousand five hundred. So more than double what we used to have. We have a new archival space. Tell us about that. Yeah, we have a much larger archival space that is on its own dedicated HVAC system. And attached to that is a processing room where when we get new collections, they can be organized and processed there, which is also on that HVAC space. Um, the, the humidity and the temperatures are, are set there to be stable, temperatures between 65 and 68 degrees. Um, I'm not sure what the humidity, but it's supposed to be low as per, so we won't see those old photos of condensation like we saw at the horror show uh, back in the day downstairs on the third floor. Um, and it has uh, both our, all of our old um, reel-to-reels in addition, you know, and cassettes. In addition to that, it has the, our document collections and then our pretty significant photo collection, the, the original photographs that are um, associated with many of our most popular Wall Street collections. It's also kind of an informal museum of recording machines and techniques from from down through the years. All of those old uh, pieces are still there. Yes. There's always been a reading room at the Center for Oral and Public History, but this one is really nice. Yes. So the, the Lyon family reading room, um, named after a very generous gift from uh, a General William Lyon uh, and his family, uh, is spectacular. It's my most favorite space in terms of uh, light and um, just it's a wonderful place to, to spend time. It has m most of our uh, bound oral history transcripts. It also has um, our small library of books that are related to oral history work that we've done. And it is there for uh, members of the community here at Cal State Fullerton or around us to come in and do research. And it has, you know, it's uh, glass encased. And our archivist, Natalie Garcia, has a view from her office into there. So when we have researchers, she 
is able to assist them when they need it and also just make sure that all of the stuff that she brings to them is uh, staying protected. It's under her watchful eye. Yes. And then there's this beautiful, long conference room, which has some unusual features to it. It, it does. So this, um, thanks to a generous donation, is the Betty and Wiley A. Aiken community room. Um, Wiley Aiken uh, was a Cal State Fullerton student. He was a history student here at Cal State Fullerton. He was one of the founders of our Phi Alpha Theta chapter here in the history department. Um, but he's also been a longtime philanthropist um, in the region um, and also engaged in politics. And so I interviewed him as part of a project for the um, uh, Vision and Visionaries project and then uh, the Orange County Politics project. And he and his wife, Betty, really believed in the work that we do here. And so we've, we've named it the community room instead of the conference room because we want it to be a gathering place for the community. Uh, yes, it has a beautiful uh, board boardroom-style conference table that can seat 28 people around it. Um, I've been teaching my oral history course, and we will continue to teach all of our oral, public, and digital history courses um, here at the center. The table, though, can break down and be put away, and we can transform that space into a lecture hall where we can seat about, I think it's 70 to 75 people um, in chairs, traditional lecture style. It's also outfitted with the latest technology of, you know, it has double zoom cameras. So you can really do a, a conference style meeting from in there. But, and it also is open so that we can have um, gatherings. We can move the tables around and really just have it as an open space for people to gather for a reception. Um, there's a wall that has a tracking system for a hanging small exhibits that we hope some of our students will put up there, um, and we can invite visitors to come see those as well. There's also a lot of whiteboard. There is a lot of whiteboard. You have to be careful. You have to clean that very well if you're going to keep it. Uh, I'm obsessed with making sure the whiteboard stays clean. I love the idea of a, a community room. Is this where oral history workshops would be held as well? Yes. Um, oral history workshops, hopefully um, when we bring our Hanson lecturers in and they meet with our students, they'll come there. Any of the history classes that are wanting to meet with either Natalie Garcia or myself about oral history work will come there. Um, hopefully other um, course classes from the humanities and social sciences which have used our materials or have worked with us um, will meet in there as well. Uh, the idea is for us, this place to be filled with students. Speaking of which, that leads to the collab. Yes. Which uh, sounds like collaboration and sounds like a lab. You are absolutely right. And uh, this collaborative workroom is a space that is there for our students. Any student who's taking an oral, public, or digital history course any student who is interning or working on a project here at the center, any student who's working on their own oral or public history project for their master's degree can come to the center, sign in at the front, and work in this collaborative workroom. Um, my students are going to use it this afternoon. Uh, Jamila's students have used it in her digital history course already uh, to meet in groups to talk about um, the work that they're doing in her class. It's exciting. 
Then there are project staff room, there's more offices, there's all this space for people to work, space for interns to work on specific projects, right? Yes. If the if somebody from the community wants to to come and, and check out the center and maybe do some work in the reading room or what have you, what do they need to do? Well, they could just show up uh, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. Uh, we, we typically won't turn anyone away. But if they are looking for particular materials that we have here at the center, they can go to our website and either email us at cough at fullerton.edu or call um, our, our main phone number, 657-278-3580, um, and make an appointment and come in. But they are more than welcome to just drop by any time uh, they want. Uh, they should know right now because of COVID, we are a um, mask-wearing community. But beyond that, we are open for business. When you come into this space, this beautiful space, what do you feel? Is it still exciting to you now that it's been up for a few months? It's very exciting to me. I think I'll be even more excited when we have more students in it. Um, as the semester's gone on, there's definitely been more students. We've had classes come in here to meet. But um, I think in the spring when we will have more students back on campus, um, more of our classes in person, um, our public history seminar, all of these things happening that um, hopefully, you know, we'll, as the life of the campus continues to come back, that, that will really be the thing that makes me most thrilled is when I come in here every day and our students in here doing work. Donors made this happen. Administrators who supported this made this happen, including our current dean, Shane Yes, all of the deans of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences uh, played a role in, in making this happen. But um, most recently, you know, Cheryl really stepped up to make sure that we could build the space. It was very important for us to build the space while some of our earliest donors would be here to appreciate the space. Um, so she uh, is the one that took out the loan that allowed us to build the space, and then I'm raising the money to pay uh, the college's loan back. And, of course, when we speak of administrators, the presidents have been extremely supportive. Yeah, I mean, you can go back to um, even President Gordon, who, when he heard about the condensation, uh, provided university funds to help us quickly digitize our most vulnerable oral histories. And that was back in 2003, 2004. Um, but then when Fran Vergie got here, you know, thankfully some of our uh, supportive board members made sure that um, Fram and Julie came to see us in the original space and that they knew that this was something that the university needed to prioritize in terms of building, um, that we had the seed money, and that we, and I really believe that um, Fram and Julie got what we do here as well um, from attending some of our programs, from coming to visit us, and, you know, having the president uh, have it as a priority to build your space certainly helped us along the way. Faculty helped build it. Yes. But ultimately, I think the students built this. I would agree 100%. You know, what, what, what made us be able to do this is the, you know, years of students that have been involved with the different projects that you and I and uh, Dr. Granada and Dr. Brown Cornell 
have carried out over the, you know, last 10 plus years um, that have really involved students in the kind of work that we do beyond the classroom. And I, I think that and many of them have gone on to do a variety of different things that I, I know that the work that we did and the projects that they were involved in played a role in what they're doing now. It's exciting. Dr. Kousakis, you have a lot to be proud of. It must be incredibly gratifying. Uh, it is gratifying, but I, yes, I, I have something to be proud of, but I think it's really a we that has something to be proud of, especially, you know, the members on the philanthropic board who stepped up to really support this project first as an initiative when the university was establishing priorities, but then who stepped up with, with funds um, when uh, Jeff Van Hart and Dan Black did a, a matching, give 10,000 of the center, we'll give 10,000 to match your 10,000, and uh, you'll get an oral history interview. And, you know, we raised uh, in the hundreds of thousands because of uh, their generosity and those board members were amongst my earliest and longest time supporters. And they they saw the vision that we all see, which is that this could be a place for the community to preserve its own history and for our students to learn the skills that will help them succeed in whatever they want to do um, once they leave Cal State Fullerton. It's the new, expanded, beautifully appointed student-filled Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. Director Natalie Fusekis, thanks for joining us on Outspoken. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre-Garcia, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our other projects. In this episode of Out of the Archives, you will be listening to clips from two former COF directors and emeritus professors of history at Cal State Fullerton, Dr. Lawrence DeGraff and Dr. Arthur Hansen. Dr. DeGraff was a founding faculty member and helped establish the history department and its curriculum. Dr. DeGraff later served as the university's first archivist. He also conducted many of the center's first oral histories for our African-American collections starting in the late 1960s. In our first two clips, Dr. Larry DeGraff talks about how the oral history program got started and recalls piecing together funding from various sources. There was a collection centered on this campus of oral interviews, but it hardly was a program in a systematic sense. When Gary Shumway came, he came having run a program at what's um, the Mormon institution, uh, Brigham Young, right. uh, and uh, knew all the things about running an oral history program. He was the one that really set up the oral history program. Um, we got bits and pieces of money uh, from here and there. Well, we didn't have really well-organized fundraising, but uh, some department chairs got us a, a quarter time or the equivalent in cash and other times, for a while, the library fund supported us, but that ended in the mid '70s. And just it was a, it was a hold out your hat almost sort of operation for quite a few years. Dr. Hansen was the founding director of the Japanese American Project when Betty Mitson decided to start the project in 1972. 
Between 1992 and 2005, Hansen co-edited a five-part collection of interviews entitled The Japanese-American World War II Evacuation Oral History Project. In the next two clips, Dr. Art Hansen discusses his vision for the oral history program and shares his passion for oral history work. I had a vision at that time of what I wanted the, the oral history program to be. And, and my vision actually was to, to make it more and more of a research center. And I, I wanted, I, I really encouraged, you know, people when they were doing a, a project or something, doing oral history projects, and they would build it on the collection because the interviews were being the center of their project. We've got some great projects that were done on oral history projects. The people, the, the nature of the job, to be able to sit and talk to people with the pontificate sometimes with them, you know, share perspectives anyway as you put and stuff. But, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful job and everything. And uh, so it's, but people have to, you know, and, and I think when that's why you know, people are in these kinds of things, they really can feel a lot of pride in it. And then more, and, and, and students do things like public history and they do things like oral history and everything. They, they actually have found themselves working as real historians. In this last clip, Dr. Hansen reflects on the significant contributions Dr. DeGraff made to oral and public history and to his students. Because, well, because Larry, you know, he did so much for oral, but he also really did so much for yeah. public, which he, he was even less. So, so, and I knew how much he did and yeah. how much the department, you know, had, had, had benefited from it and how much the students did. I mean, you know, uh, you know uh, he taught the first course in the graduate studies thing. It was a very rigorous course. You know, they, they, it was the, you know, just the, the, the opening the seminar they had to take. And all of my students who took that course just loved it. I hope you enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with these interviews, we have over 6,000 oral histories in our collection. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. Thanks for listening to Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. For archivist Natalie Garcia and producer Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothrop. Until next time.